Hello and welcome to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. I'm Anna Adima and I am a PhD candidate in history at the University of York. For this episode, I will be joined by Chao Tayana Maina, also known as Headstrong Historian. Chao is a Kenyan digital heritage specialist and digital humanities scholar working at the intersection of culture and technology. With a background in computer science and a lifelong passion for history, her work primarily focuses on the application of technology within African heritage. She's the founder of African Digital Heritage, a co-founder of the Museum of British Colonialism, and a co-founder of the Open Restitution Africa project. All of these are online initiatives seeking to encourage a more critical, holistic, and knowledge-based approach to the design and implementation of digital solutions within African cultural heritage. We hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Okay, so hi Chow, thank you so much for joining me and for joining the Scottish Centre for Global History. I am a big fan of your work, as you know, um, so I'm really excited that you took the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Thanks Anna, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to, to have this opportunity. Thank you so much for considering me to be part of this podcast and being, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Awesome. So I guess we'll just launch right into the conversation. Could I ask you to begin with, um, you know, talking to me and talking to, to our listeners a bit about your work? Uh, absolutely. My name is Chao Tayana Miner. I sometimes and occasionally um, go by the name Headstrong Historian. I'm a Kenyan-born and a Nairobi-based digital heritage specialist. A lot of my work looks at the intersection of culture and technology, but particularly, you know, that's, that's my formal introduction, but um, in a more informal way, I, I call myself or refer to myself as a historian by passion and a computer scientist by profession, because this is uh, these are basically my two worlds merging. I'm very interested in the intersection of um, technology and culture, particularly looking at the ways in which digital tools digital platforms, digital infrastructure is influencing African heritage, you know, and by influencing, I'm talking about how we preserve, how we document, how we disseminate, how we engage with um, African heritage on digital platforms, because I think this, I think the digital disruption in itself is one of the biggest things that can happen within looking at African culture, African past and African heritage considering you know the legacies of, of, of um, disruption that we have faced in the past and I, I really do look at digital tools as, as a as a way of, of reclamation you know but at the same time I think we need to be very critical about how we use them um, within this space I'd say I do everything from grassroots documentation, of history and culture, to digitization of archives in library and museums, to training of museum and cultural sector professionals. Um, but I really did begin by um, having a history blog. You know, that was my first entry point into understanding um, technology and culture because I, I ran a history blog called the Agora for a number of years between 2012 and pretty much 2016, 2017. And I remember thinking and, and feeling that in as much as it was a passion project, what it did um, in terms of expose me to the need, you know, that people needed to, to, to have this material 
accessible online. They needed to see representations of their culture online was fascinating for me. And I think that really spurred my interest in, in the field that I am in today. Okay, and this was a, a project looking at the documentation of railway stations in Kenya. And at the time we were having um, this new railway that was being constructed um, by the Chinese, constructed and funded by the Chinese government. And I felt that um, pretty much the, the old railway per se and the perspectives of Africans and Kenyans who had lived around it, worked within the railway, used the railway, were largely being ignored and forgotten in that point. And, and that the railway, the Save the Railway project was really a counter progress good, but it's also important, I think, to preserve and actively document our histories. So I went around the country taking photographs of railway stations and um, interviewing people. So that, I think that, that was my first major um, digital heritage project per se. Hey, awesome. Thank you so much, Chow. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I'm a big fan of your work, so I could listen to you talk about what you do um, all day. Um, so to launch straight into the Q&A session, um, I was wondering whether you could talk to me a bit about your research methods um, and what archives and primary sources you use and how you turn these into accessible and bite-sized information for the public. Well, my, my research methods are, I think, I like to think of it as very analytical. Um, I think because of my, my background in tech and, and having like that foundation um, within, you know, digital or computer science, I tend to approach history from a very analytical perspective, you know, like what is a problem, what are the building blocks, what do I work with, and, and what is the solution, you know, so sort of really um, uh, streaming and, and streamlining everything into this little blocks um, of information and saying, okay, the problem is that, for example, like the railway um, things are changing and this needs to be captured. Okay, what, what are the sources that I need I have people, I have books, I have archives, and I have the physical representations of the stations themselves. Okay, what do I need to work with them? Who do I speak to? So I kind of like very, very much have have this kind of like, you know, subdivide the historical problem or subject into blocks, and then I approach it in that way. But I think one of the things that has been very central to my work and to all the, all the work that I do is, um, a very deliberate expansion of the sources that I use in terms of understanding what knowledge systems I'm referring to and, and working with, um, as opposed to particularly just saying, I'm going to base everything on the written record. Um, I, I understand the ways in which um, indigenous knowledge systems have been erased, community knowledge systems, and in the ways in which knowledge has been um, transferred in different societies and communities has been largely um, forgotten or belittled. And so one of the things that I try and do within all the projects that I, I encounter is to, yes, rely on archives and the written record, but also to say, okay, what other sources can I use? So is it oral history, um, community, you know, participation, speaking with people? Um, and it's, it's, it's really amazing what you find in terms of things that, you know, are not online or things that have not been written down, but are so crucial to the understanding of that particular past. Um, the other thing is to look at um, to expand to expand the definition of the record. You know, so do I? Do I? Can we consider landscape as records? 
Do we consider buildings as records? Do we consider, you know, these are also archives in themselves, place names, how people interact with geography, with, with urban spaces, with rural spaces. And I think beginning to see those as records in their own right has allowed me to really, really holistically look at um, the subjects that I approach. And I, and I keep trying to refine this as I, as I go along. Um, in terms of dissemination, it really is um, a question of where the audiences are and who I'm intending to speak to and interact with. In terms of dissemination, it really is a question of the audience, um, who I'm intending to speak to, who the information is targeted at, um, who the information is coming from. And this determines sort of um, the ways in which I'll disseminate the data. But mostly a lot of my work finds, finds itself uh, on social media, on different platforms. It also depends with the format of the work. You know, is it video? Is it um, photographs? Is it text? Is it, you know, and this determines sort of like what platforms the work will, will, will find itself um, embedded in. So in terms of dissemination, I think I look at um, the audience primarily, the cultural record, you know, in terms of sensitivities, licensing ethics and, and what it means to have certain material on certain spaces, and then seeing the ways in which these two things can inform where the information is, is um, eventually disseminated. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. And I really like what you said about, you know, expanding the def definition of the record and looking at, you know, potentially mm -hmm. landscapes and buildings as well. That's that is, yeah, that's definitely something that I shall um, think about later. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, so leading on to um, my next question, I'd like to talk to you a bit more about, about Save the Railway, which you mentioned earlier. Um, and I was wondering whether you could talk to us a bit about the project and its emotionality, because um, I believe, maybe not today, but I think you once told me that it's such an emotional project as well. And so many people came up to you and were talking to you, you know, about their memories of using the train back in the day. And I was wondering, you know, what kind of emotions and personal stories you um, find were connected to the railway and how people kind of reacted when you told them about the project in relation to what you said earlier about dissemination. Now, the Stays the Railway project was very interesting for me because it was the first time I was attempting, you know, to even, you know, a lot of my work had been, I go to the archives, I find a record, I write about it, I post it on the blog. But it really was the first time where I was challenging myself um, to see in terms of what I was saying about landscape as archives and buildings archives. And in hindsight, you know, I, I was approaching it from that perspective, but at the time I didn't, I didn't have the tools or the knowledge to understand exactly what I was doing. Um, so my inspiration was uh, in the beginning, very initially was to document the buildings themselves um, because some of them and quite a good number of them were being either demolished to pave way, pave way for the new railway. So the physical structure, you know, the tangible nature of, of the railway was my primary motivation in the beginning. But then what I found as I started moving along, as I started going to different parts of the country, different towns, different cities, was that actually the intangible, the intangible memories and histories associated with the railway were far more in need of representation and documentation than I had imagined because I had not, I had not interacted with the railway pretty much as a child, maybe once or twice, you know, but not not to the extent where I had an emotional, a very deep emotional connection to it. And this emotional connection was coming from the people I spoke to 
from the people who I interviewed, from the people I found in the different towns. And there I began to see that actually this, this began as a project. It was a project about buildings, but by the time I was finishing it in, you know, a period of four, four years or so, it was a project about people. And I, I really still think it is. Um, looking at the ways in which the African perspective had been erased from the railway. So you have this kind of like very romanticized idea of um, this European adventure in the East African wild and conquering, you know, indigenous uncharted and inhabited territories when there was so much violence, even within the construction, there's a lot of violence in terms of how it was constructed. There's a lot of disruption to the landscape, disruption to the people. And even that in itself has not become a central pillar of how we understand the railways. You know, when we talk about it, we have the key points being um, the man-eating lions of Savo, which is also a romanticized narrative, very horrific if you come to think about it. Um, but the first time I began to think about it from a people's perspective was when I read a little blurb in, in one of the archives that said that while the man the, the two man-eating lions of Savo that had you know really disrupted construction of the railway, from the perspective of the local communities, they were the spirits of two chiefs who had passed on um, prior to the construction of the railway and were resisting, you know, they were resisting this construction. And that's how the local, you know, the, the communities that lived around this area perceived this disruption and the, the lions and, you know, but it, it never comes up. It never, it never came up. You know, it was just, they were gunned down by a certain British, you know, lieutenant or colonel and that's it. So I, I think that was for me was a very key point in thinking, hmm, there, there's a lot of narratives that we're just missing and we're not, we're really not understanding. Um, and it was very emotional in the sense that it was sort of this project where people just needed the space. It wasn't so much that I was facilitating even like you know, an understanding of the history that had not been there, or I was introducing something that I'm uncovering, you know, a secret past, it really was the provision of space and platform to share, you know, and once people had the space to share and talk about it in that way, there was so much coming in, people who use the railway as children, for in, you know, when going on the honeymoons to school, to transport produce, it really was embedded in the life of the country. But the story of the railway was, it was built in the 1890s. There were man-eating lions somewhere along the way. British settlers used it also um, and declined after independence due to African corruption. That was sort of the summary. And what was happening in between was interesting for me. The gaps and the spaces in between these periods was what I was looking to document. Um, and in that sense, it was emotional. It was emotional for me because I was encountering a lot of this for the first time. I didn't anticipate the emotional weight of it at all. I remember there were certain places where people would ask, but are they bringing the railway back? You know, like, what is this project for if not? Because no one had, you know, very few people had taken an interest in the structures for so long that someone taking or showing that interest was indication that the railway might come back. And I didn't know how to say, no, I really am just a university student taking photographs, I have, I have no control over whether the railway is coming back, but I think it was that um, symbolizing of hope or interest that this 
might come back. And at that point, I also realized that what I was looking at as, as very much a historical relic was very much alive in people's minds. You know, so I was looking at it from a historical perspective, but the people who are like, no, this, this needs to come back. It is something in the present. It is not a historical thing. So those are some of the differences and things that I learned along the way. It definitely taught me a lot. Um, and it was, it set the precedent, I think, for many of, of the projects that have, have come after in, in my work. Thank you so much, Chow. I found that really interesting, especially what you say, you know, about like emotions and how um, there's a lot of emotions connected to the railway that, you know, are lost in the official historical record, which are mostly colonial archives and also emotions that you experience as a historian conducting that research. Um, yeah, I feel that yeah, there's a lot to be said about how, yeah, the historic own historians emotions in conducting research, especially for like their own countries that have such a brutal past. So. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, Thanks, Anna. I guess my next question, it's a bit different. It's um, with regard to collaboration because, um, so you're um, part of the Museum of British Colonialism and you work with them, um, which is, you know, a volunteer led organization and the team consists of both people based in Kenya and in the UK. And likewise, you also work on your project Open Restitution Africa, which I'll ask you to explain to the listeners um, what that is later, because I think you can do that better than I can. Um, and you work <laughs> with um, a South African based historian. So um, what role do you feel that collaboration, you know, both within Africa and also internationally has to play in public history and making history accessible to the people? British colonialism is what I always call uh, a big name for a small group of volunteers working across um, Kenya and the UK to realize, document and disseminate more truthful, more inclusive accounts of, of colonial history. And the inspiration for this collective and this group was coming from the fact that despite the fact that we knew of colonialism, we understood very little of the experience of colonialism. And I think those are two very different things because it's, 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 you can have an awareness of the dates like Kenya gained independence in 1963. But if I understand very little of the colonial experience, then what does it mean to just have an awareness of colonialism without an awareness of the human experience, you know? And I think growing up in Kenya and going through like the public education system, for me, there was a lot of discrepancies between what you would hear at home, you know, within family discussions or within, you know, really, really localized settings versus what you encountered in school. And so there were many questions in terms of, but, why didn't we know about this or why don't we know about it to this extent and even for our colleagues uh, my colleagues who are in the UK we know that you know the, the UK has not been um, there's no aspects of you know like this colonialism or empire in the curriculum to the extent in which it happened you know in very many countries and affected you know millions of people across the world so we are coming together with an awareness of the gaps that we have with regards to this period, and also to actually say it's not too long ago. You know, you have people within our society who this is in living memory, essentially. So why is it that um, very little is understood and very little is talked about? So it really is a response to this, this um, kind of covering up or abstraction of colonialism by saying that there's a lot to learn. 
there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot that is, is being ignored and actively being erased as we speak. Um, so the collective works um, on different projects, but I'll speak primarily to the project that um, I'm mainly involved in. And this is the documentation and documentation and mapping of detention camps that was set up by the British colonial government in Kenya between 1952 and 1960 in response to the Mau Mau uprising, which was an uprising that called for you know, land return, land reclamation, and freedom and independence in Kenya. And the response of the colonial government was to set up a wide network, wide and vast network of camps, detention camps, forced villages in which communities that were suspected of, of being in the Mau Mau or that were more forefront in terms of agitation were essentially held for a period of eight years. And you have men being separated from their families, women and children being put into forced villages. But what's strange is that after independence here in Kenya, the history and the memory of these camps essentially just fizzles out. You know, a lot of the centers are either turned into schools, secondary schools, prisons, or just become private property. So you can't just go around the country and see a, a huge plaque saying this was a detention camp. And it was shocking for me and, and for many Kenyans and of my generation to realize that we didn't know that these centers existed and that the structures are still there. So MBC, what we have been doing is this kind of a um, deliberate grassroots work where we actually try and find the sites today, find where, where they are located, see if there are any structures um, from detention that are still there. And oftentimes in like three or four, three or four sites that we visited, you find buildings with barbed wire, you find solitary confinement cells that are still very much intact. But because they are absorbed into different systems and different structures like the education system, the prison system, it's very hard to know that these structures are there because they're not publicly accessible. So we've been um, carrying out this kind of grassroots documentation, interviewing people, um, conducting oral history interviews has also been a big part of the project, as well as documenting the sites in terms of their location, their, um, where they are, who is there, what was held in them, and, and the people who experience these sites. So it's, it's very multi-pronged multi in terms of um, the data we are collecting. And what we're also doing is because a lot of these sites were either have been modified or and or <laughs> archives related to this um, period were either destroyed or taken to the UK. So it's very hard for Kenyan historians to access these archives or records here. So what we're doing is also trying to create um, digital visualizations of how the sites would have looked. Um, I strongly believe in the power of visual media to, to communicate impact you know and in and, and context and, and the severity of of what this was like because when you see a photograph of a classroom lined with barbed wire on the roof you have to ask questions you know and and that's sort of what we're trying to say in the visual in the when we're when we're pushing a more visual approach to this kind of understanding that despite the fact that this has been known in terms of maybe in academia or in political circles, it's not part of national memory. And there's a reason why it's very deliberate. So MBC has, has primarily been working within the digital space. A lot of the work we produce is online. Our audiences are online. 
we do have physical events, but so far um, that has been that has been our approach to to understanding this work and also being very clear and saying that we are sharing what we are learning. You know, so you are, we're not approaching this as experts on detention in Kenya. We're really saying we had no idea two years ago that these things existed. So and even when we when we have videos when we carry out you know like field work, we always have what we like to call field work diaries in which we take our audiences with us as we encounter the sites for the first time. So it's, it's, it's an approach that we're refining. Um, we're challenging the notion of a museum as being physical, you know, as being a space of expertise, um, as being a space that doesn't encourage dialogue or critical thinking. And we're trying to say, what, what if we call ourselves a museum without objects, without space, without, you know, what does it mean? Um, can we still call ourselves a museum? So some of the questions that are coming up from this project are very interesting and we're learning, pretty much learning as we go, but the impact that we have had on the audiences and people who come to us saying, I didn't know about this and I went to ask my grandfather and actually he was in a camp or his mother was in a camp or my, you know, there's been so much public participation in terms of connecting the dots backwards for a certain generation in a particular generation that is very encouraging to see, yeah. Thank you. Um, and could you talk to us a bit about your work with Open Restitution Africa? Yes, so Open Restitution Africa is uh, my latest project. Um, it's a collaboration between myself and Molemo Moilwa, um, who's uh, based in Johannesburg. And we essentially are looking at the question of restitution of African objects from a data perspective. We realized we met, we met at a conference in Namibia in September 2019. And part of this conference was um, there were many um, African museum practitioners who were speaking about restitution and their experiences, but this information was essentially nowhere to be found in terms of you, you didn't know what was happening until you access certain spaces or find yourself in certain um, you know, rooms, it's very hard to know what's going on. And we understand and we know very clearly, we've seen very clearly that restitution has over the past, I'd say five years or so, um, has become a very, it's more public centered. There's more public awareness in between Emmanuel Macron's speech and Black Panther there has been so such, you know, public interest, you know, in in this in this short time, I would say more than there has been in the past, and this is also largely facilitated by access to media, access to social media, and, and seeing this become a public discussion has been very crucial in terms of how the restitution debate is moving forward. So, Open Restitution Africa is a project that seeks to understand, to map out, and to design a platform for that in which data about restitution of African objects can be made more transparent, more accessible and more centralized. Because it, it's very scary because in terms of um, how we view restitution, it's, it's very easy to think nothing is happening or nothing has happened because the data is simply not accessible. You know, and what, what that does is that it centers the European perspective. It centers European practitioners. It centers, um, you know, European voices in a debate that is essentially about loss and pain 
and the removal of artifacts and the disruption of cultures and of, of African people. Um, and we are, we are seeking to create this platform as a response to this, um, to highlight the practitioners, African practitioners who have been working, who are working um, as a platform where you can access best practice policy, you can know how much has been returned because we're not operating essentially from a knowledge, uh, a data-based um, perspective, we can say some stuff has been returned, but do we know how many? Do we know how many pending requests there are? Do we know who has been working on this? Do we know who are the critical voices in, in, um, in the different countries? Who are the communities? You know, so there's, there's a big data gap and a big data need that Open Restitution is seeking to, to sort of centralize. Um, but also to say that the perspective of, of African practitioners, African communities, African audiences is more complex than it's not a scientific, it's not just a scientific process of provenance. You know, there's a lot of emotional disruption. It's emotional labor, it's psychological labor. It's, you know, there's a lot of complexities within the debate that are being missed and nuances that are sort of not being understood. Um, and how how do we put this at the forefront and how do we make this more known? So it's still at the very beginning um, and we're still conducting research into restitution, into data needs, but we hope that a platform such as this can really act as a catalyst or enable more conversations at different levels of, of, of society, not just within specialist circles, within the public domain, within practitioner domains, within specialist domains, what are the data needs at each of these levels and how can we make this more accessible? Thank you. Um, and I guess in relation to your work with both NBC and Open Restitution Africa, which are both you know, collaborative projects, what role do you feel that collaboration has in public history? So it's a heavy question, but I think I approach it from the perspective that human human stories you know human memories and stories are literally the building blocks of any culture any society any you know we are essentially a collection of you know our ability to store memory to transmit memory and to use our memory to build futures that's who we are as human beings and i think collaboration really it expands i think the the view that you have um, because we are also quite limited and tied to our environment. And while there are some things that make us different, there's a lot that makes us similar. And collaboration, I think, really enhances the ways in which we can work as a group. Um, in terms of NBC and the work that we're doing, the collaboration between Kenya and the UK is so critical because in as much as you know, we can say that Kenya gained independence, quote unquote, what does that mean when we're still very much living in neo-colonial systems, when colonialism is still a big part of how I move around my city, Nairobi? You know, it influences trade, it, it influences healthcare, it influences everything we, we have come to know as ourselves. So I think the collaboration in that extent and in that sense is very different because it is saying that we are coming together to address a subject that has brought us together but is affecting us in different ways and each of these ways is intertwined and interconnected and we have to understand that um, and for as, as regards to the open restitution collaboration um, 
I think this goes back to, you know, the invention of Africa and, and what, you know, this, this term that we have now collectively embodied, you know, when 100, 150 years ago, my, my great grandmother did not see herself as an African, you know, she, she was, maybe she was Maasai, maybe she was Kikuyu, but she was not walking around feeling like I am an African, you know, and, and Africa is, is pretty much an invention. And in as much as it is an invention, it is, it is our reality. You know, we are not running away from it because it has come to define how we move around the world, how we are treated, how we are seen. And I think taking ownership of it is also a counter towards this negative invention. Um, and collaboration really serves to strengthen, I think, the collective voice and the collective movement to demand justice in different fronts for, for Black people and for people, whether it's in, in the African, on the African content or in the African diaspora. Um, there's a Kenyan filmmaker called Mbipi Masia, and in one of his interviews, I was interviewing him, he talks about the Africans, you know, if we stop saying Africa, seeing Africa as this monolith of, you know, just this one culture, one language, one, but saying the Africans, that there's so much, there's so much complexity, there's so much multiplicity in, in everything. Um, so for us, Open Restitution Africa is really just saying that these complexities and these multiplicities exist but uniting them in the sense that we can understand and begin to use these complexities to our own advantage and to strengthen our own causes. Um, and I think it's, it's really beautiful collaboration on that front, both locally, regionally, and internationally is really crucial to public history because the public in itself is not, is not a monolith. It's many people who have just been described as the public. You know, and it, when you're targeting the public, when you need as many perspectives as possible, then collaboration does that. Thank you so much for that fascinating answer, Cheryl. And that leads on perfectly to my next question. Um, so on your website, you say, quote, to be a Black person working to document Black histories is to occupy three different worlds in three different roles. A spokesperson for your erased past, an activist in your contested present, and an architect of an alternative future, unquote. So could you talk to me about what role you feel that you as a young black Kenyan woman feel that you play in reading and presenting black and Kenyan history? It is, I think as, as, I, as I, when I wrote that quote down, I can't, I can't remember exactly what I had shared, but I had shared something online and the response to it was very heavy it was heavy in the sense that people were both reacting to the content and also reacting to their lack of knowledge on the content. And I thought about this quote because I think the responsibility of a Black historian, of an African historian is really, really, you're working across different timelines because you're reaching back into the past to address something that has most likely either been misrepresented, erased, but like, you know, we. We know that when we encounter Black history, we are actually making a statement. When we talk to our grandmothers, when we research, when we're actually making a statement and a stake, staking our claim in the world that our past and our people and our ancestors and our religions and cultures have contributed greatly to humanity, you know? And I think in that role, you become a spokesperson. 
you become a spokesperson for a past that has been misrepresented and erased, you know, and, and you're re literally, <laughs> it feels like you're reaching back to uncover things and, and um, to decipher things, but also going against what you have been socialized to know, you know. When we were kids, we thought, you know, just Africans, we don't have history in our history where it is actually known is simply just primitive, you know, and as adults, we really have to acknowledge that you have to go against what you've been raised or socialized to understand to reach back into the past with a different perspective and with a different mindset. And I think in that way, you, you really become a champion of, of this kind of past that has been largely marginalized and in the present you are an activist you know you are going against what is considered just normal what is what the what we have been taught to internalize you are you are essentially saying this is wrong you know or if you look at the books and publishing by black historians it's it's as if we are actually activists in the present you know and and um it's more than it's more than a story. It's more than a fact. It's a you know it's it's a cause. It almost feels like a cause, you know, and the weight of it and what it can do to impact identity, what it can do to impact people's feelings about themselves is so heavy and so powerful. And now, lastly, thinking of this as you're being you're becoming an architect of an alternative future because how we feel about our past, how we feel about our cultures determines how we move around the world, how our identities related to mental health, identities related to well-being, you know, how, how does this imagination or reimagination of who you are and recentering yourself, how does it affect what you create as an artist, as a writer, as a teacher, as an engineer, when you reach back into a past that is wholesome, that is centering you and your humanity, what does that do? in terms of the future that you build. So I think the quote was really much trying to address these three facets of working within Black history. And for me, it's through my projects, I, I want to, you know, I want to say that they've been amazing and I've learned so much, but there has also been a very heavy emotional toll on myself. And considering, you know, these three roles that you are always playing whether you like it or not, you you know you sort of embody this kind of work. It is it does it is an emotional it is an emotional task. It is emotional labor. It, there's a lot of unlearning to do. There's a lot of um, representation and looking at things like empathy. How do we approach our past with empathy for the people who've been sort of erased for the people who've been, you know, just marginalized for the people who've been told that they were nothing. How do we reignite and reinfuse humanity for people who have been dehumanized? And you are part of the people who have been dehumanized, you know, so this is an emotional toll. As a woman, particularly as an African woman in a space that has been the preserve of men and even more so the preserve of white men who are sort of like the quote unquote official keepers of world history. How do people believe me? And, you know, at my age, you know, <laughs> at 20, as I started working when I was 20, 21, um, what do I know about the past? You know, what right do I have to say that I'm a historian, you know? So 
I've had to counter a lot within myself, um, a lot of biases that would have prevented me and sometimes prevent me from thinking, do I belong in this space? I won't, I won't, I won't sit here and say that those things have not affected me. Um, there's a lot of sometimes a lot of anxiety, a lot of doubt, you know, when, when you feel that you, are you, are you in the right space? Really, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Who's going to listen? You know, so those are questions that each and every time I do a project, sometimes they come up more when I started. I remember when I was doing the Save the Railway project, I had to do a lot of field work. I had to go around the country and take photographs. And I remember when I would say that this is a historical project, when people would say like, why are you taking photographs? Or who are you? When I would say that it's a historical project, people just wouldn't understand. They would just be like, but what is your what is your agenda? What is your agenda? What do you really want? Because me being there taking photographs for historical purposes was not believable enough. So sometimes I, I really would just give in and say, okay, it's a school project and I'm a journalist. And I'm like, oh, okay, carry on, you know. <laughs> but even, you know, I often think, you know, maybe if, if people are not used to that kind of person digging up stuff and you know, taking photographs, it's, 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 it's not what we have known. And I think that that greatly affects how we look at history because as Africans and, and even as women, we can tend to look at history as something that happens to us, that we just consume it. We are just a very passive audience where really, I think if we look at history as a verb, as something we do, you know, that you can history, I history, we all history, like it's something you actively do. How does that change your relationship with the past? When you feel empowered, when you feel that you have the tools and the space to ask the questions that you need to ask, you know, I think those are some of the questions that I think about and yeah, still are on my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting because, um, yeah, it's not just you were talking to other um, African and Black historians, not just in Africa, but also in the diaspora, they've all kind of mentioned similar things about, I feel that there's so much activism that goes hand in hand with African and Black history. And like you said, so much emotional labor as well, because a lot of it involves going against the grain and reading sources alternatively or finding completely mm -hmm. different sources that are not necessarily housed in national archives, which you know also prioritize mm -hmm. a certain point of view. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for that. Um, I guess to kind of end the interview on a more uplifting on a more uplifting note, um, what would you say have been some of your career highlights the past few years, and what about your work, and what is it about your work that you love the most? Ah, I love how my work makes people feel. Mm. In terms of even if it's like really painful histories, it makes people feel seen. I think I like that my work makes people feel seen across the projects that I've done and um, the different historical subjects, whether it's even within restitution or colonialism or railways. I think when people feel seen and when they feel that they have something to give, um, it changes how they consume the content and seeing how, how that has had an impact on how people consume the past and how they relate to it. I think a lot of people also are like, if Chow can do this, I think, honestly, I think I can, you know, because, you know, we've grown up together and we, it's not, it doesn't, 
I'm not like standing out from the crowd or have like kind of special privileges or, you know, it's, it really was like, let me try and see if I can do this and hey, I can do it. So making people feel seen has, it makes me happy. It makes me happy to see people center themselves in a story where they have been decentered and where they have, where, where we have been socialized to think that we have nothing to give, just things to receive. I like, I like that my work makes people feel seen, but also in, in a certain kind of way challenges people to do this in their own spaces, within their families, within their organizations, within their communities. I think that's really powerful. An impact, like in another highlight has been um, people who've approached me and said that my blog and my work online inspired them to start their, you know, their, their projects. I know three or four people who have different blogs, um, different online spaces, looking at different aspects of history who have said that they were inspired by the work that I produced and they're doing it, whether it's, re it's with regards to Kenyan music, coastal history, but they're taking ownership. I think the taking ownership is really beautiful to see. Um, so those have been my highlights, but also speaking with people. And I, I love, I love speaking with people, you know, oral history and speaking with communities. It's, it's just a really interesting thing for me. It's one of the favorites. It's one of the best parts of, of my work um, because I guess I, I begin, I approach history with this kind of like very personal, emotive, I never separate myself from the subject. <laughs> Maybe it's a bad thing, but it, there's a lot of- It's not a bad thing at all. <laughs> <laughs> I never separate myself. And there's a lot of empathy that I try to infuse in the work. And I think when people recognize it, it's, it's, it's good. So, I mean, in, in summary, I, I'm not going to speak of like awards and no, those are, those are my highlights. The words will come, don't worry, they'll come. <laughs> <laughs> One day, so yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you so much for that, Chow. I think I'll end the recording here, but yeah, as usual, I learned so much from you um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. So thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Um, if, if anyone wants more information, you can visit my website, which is headstronghistorian.com. Um, you can also find me as Headstrong Historian on Instagram and Headstrong Historian on Twitter, I think. Yeah, so those are my social contacts. Awesome, thank and you. I'll drop those in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for this conversation and opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed producing it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can visit our website, globalhistory.org.uk, email us on scgh at dundee.ac.uk, or follow us on Twitter at uodscgh. Thank you.